Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, we're going to dive into one of the biggest, or shall we say, most fiery debuts we've seen on TV for a long time. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. Two more terrific shows wrapped up this past week. We'll talk about Only Murders in the Building and The Rehearsal. Plus, Sylvester Stallone isn't too old yet to get into the superhero game. We'll tee up his new movie on Prime called Samaritan. As mentioned, it was a monster debut for HBO's House of the Dragon. You may do as you wish, but I am cold in my grave. Dreams didn't make us kings. Dragons did. But the people remember the ancient strength of House Targaryen. No king has ever lived that hasn't had to forfeit the lives of a few to protect the many. You are no conqueror. You are a plague. Our houses are bound by a common cause. Perhaps. But there will be blood. Almost 10 million viewers on that opening night this past Sunday. That's a new record for an HBO series debut. And that's just that opening night. They're still working on the final tally for recordings and later viewings, etc. HBO Max crashed. Crave crashed in Canada. There was a video that you may have seen of someone standing outside a New York City apartment building looking at all the lights flickering in unison in dozens of apartment windows, people all watching House of the Dragon at the same time. Way more viewers than the Game of Thrones series premiere in 2011, which had 4 million viewers, and the series finale was closer to 20 million. But still, for a series debut, especially after the bad taste that finale left in many mouths, this is an impressive achievement. And it makes me happy to see that more conventional appointment-based TV isn't quite dead yet in the age of streaming. Jeff, what did you think? Oh, I liked it. And yeah, exactly what you said about appointment-based TV not being dead because we just wrapped up Better Call Saul last week and right away we've already got something new, the kind of the newest water cooler show, uh, as it were. I was one of the ones trying to watch on Crave. It crashed and then scheduling, yada, yada, yada. Didn't even get around to watching it until Wednesday. But I really enjoyed it. I was nervous about 10 minutes in that I wouldn't be able to remember anyone's names. And I still don't think I know anyone's names. But they actually did a good job of keeping it clear. They say everyone's name a thousand times in that first hour. So eventually we'll learn all the names. They also let you know right up front that they're going to hold your hand when they have to. Uh, There's a bunch of text on the screen at the very beginning explaining when this takes place. It's a bunch of complicated history. But then all the words disappear except for something along the lines of 178 years before Daenerys Targaryen, just to make it crystal clear to us all that this is basically, you know, 200 years before Game of Thrones takes place. And it's definitely Game of Thrones. Uh, Nudity, grisly violence, a lot of bad language. I forgot what a brutal world this was. And besides the general vibe, you know, being very Games of Throny, there were quite a few direct allusions to the first series. The theme song is kind of woven into the new music here and there 
And then there's a literal name check of the book series, The Song of Ice and Fire. And while we haven't seen the ice yet, we've definitely seen the fire after, you know, Game of Thrones spent seasons and seasons working up to the big dragons. Here they hit it with us right out of the gate. It's, of course, nowhere near as thrilling to see the dragons in this as it was in the first series for precisely that reason. There's no buildup or anticipation of a reveal that's just a world of dragons. I thought the story points we got in the first hour were excellent. The show very quickly sets up a lot of the dynamics between the main characters. We know a lot about the hierarchy of this particular kingdom that we've been dropped into, who might be vying for power, maybe a few strong hints about who can and cannot be trusted. But again, you know, who knows? The soap opera elements that come with this kind of a show just means characters that suck today could be great in three seasons from now like Jamie Lannister for example was more than a heel at the beginning of Game of Thrones and they tried to ennoble him over the years but for just one episode I thought House of, Drag House of the Dragon did a great job jumping into the palace intrigue and all that I'm instantly hooked and I guess there's going to be a significant time jump because the main young lady in the first episode apparently is to be replaced by an older actress so some years are going to go by this season that's new to the show that didn't happen in Game of Thrones at all. Uh, the only real nitpick I have, Brett, is I wish they would bring back the map. That opening credits map in the original series was vital for me on an almost weekly basis so I could keep things straight. And it's been three years and I don't remember any of the geography of Westeros at all besides Winterville and uh, the wall being up north. So I need the map back. Hopefully that'll come into place somehow in the next uh, episodes as we go on. But I loved it. That's a great point. I would love to see that map come back as well. And uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And what a difference between this debut and Game of Thrones. It's clear that there's a lot more money involved in the production. The visual effects are spectacular. Not to say that the first episode of Game of Thrones was a small production by any means. But if you put the two of them side by side, they went all in. And they knew they had to, right? They had to make a big splash and tell a good story and get us hooked, as you pointed out, because a lot of people are probably tuning in, uh, even though they didn't care for that first series. So, yeah, 9.9 .9 million viewers to start. And uh, it's interesting as well, because it started this past Sunday, and now we've got the Rings of Power debuting on Prime on Friday, September 2nd. So you're going to have not just one show, Jeff, with a thousand characters, you have to remember, but now you're going to have a second show, <laughs> oh. which a fantasy show with a thousand characters to remember. I'm entirely sure that I will be mixing and matching storylines from one to the other. I will just utter confusion uh, lies ahead for me, I'm sure. A good thing, though, is that Game of Thrones is so horribly r-rated and the uh, lord of the rings thing obviously won't be so that might help me different change like a head will come off and they'll show it and i'll be like oh yeah game of thrones right i was a little surprised with all the sex stuff i mean there wasn't a ton of nudity but there was enough because i had uh i thought i had read that they were going to scale it back but even uh, one of the actors i think his name is matt smith the one who plays the younger brother targaryen the brother of the king and i think he actually complained and said, like, do we really need another sex scene? So curious to see if they'll modify that as they go through. But I, they probably just wanted to plant their flag and say, yeah, as you pointed out, Jeff, like, yep, this is Game of Thrones. It's violent. Right. We got sex. We got nudity. This is a hard R show. And if you don't like it, take a hike. So looking forward to that. Ten episodes. 
of House of the Dragon. And uh, we move on now to another show that debuted this past week. Oh, and I should point out, by the way, um, Jeff has been working from home for two and a half years. I've been at the radio station recording, but today we're both at home. So we say thank you to our friend and colleague, producer Kyle Milroy, who's manning the ship down at the station. Thanks a lot, Kyle. So uh, the next show we wanted to talk about debuted on Disney Plus this past week, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. High school, that friend that you have that's cooler than you are, and they get all the attention. Hello. I think I'm jealous. Everyone pays attention when I'm She-Hulk. Colleagues. She-Hulk is a total snack. My family. Guys. How much can you deadlift? A literal ton. When you're a hero, size matters. Not that that should be, but it does. She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Original series now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. The latest series in the Marvel Cinematic Universe starring Tatiana Maslany as She-Hulk. Tatiana Maslany is from... Regina, you may remember her from the show Orphan Black, where she played multiple characters, clones. She uh, was an Emmy Award winner for her work in that show. She is outstanding. And uh, this show I was skeptical about, wasn't sure about the whole comedy vibe, wasn't sure about the CGI, but uh, in the end, I I mostly dug it. Jeff, what'd you think? Yeah, I've watched the first two. I just watched a second episode. 45 minutes ago, actually, right before we started uh, doing this, because the first episode is just the the origin story or whatever, and it's mostly her and the original Hulk, and he's obviously not going to be in the whole show or anything like that. So the second episode is more about her work life, more of the attorney at law business, and uh, we also meet her family. Her dad's played by Mark Lynn Baker, who, of course, was Cousin Larry on Perfect Strangers, but he was also in the show The Leftovers. So that puts this guy in two cinematic universes where uh, sizable portions of the population disappeared with a stamp of a finger, which is kind of weird. But uh, there you have it. Um, and Jam- Jamila Jamil is in it. I guess she's a villain of sorts. We also meet another villain in the second episode of Familiar Villain. So as much as it's going to be a quote-unquote workplace comedy, it's still going to be a Marvel show where she hulks up and starts punching people and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, I, I really like Tatiana Maslami in this. I've never saw Orphan Black. I think this might be the first thing I've actually seen her in. And I thought the CGI was fine because I honestly don't think uh, the She-Hulk animation looks any worse than the regular Hulk animation has looked over the years. So that's fine with me. And for a Marvel TV show, I think it fits just fine. I like that, you know, she looks at the camera, breaks the fourth wall, and they are doing some weird things from out of left field that they've not done before because I think at this point uh, Marvel's got more than enough rope and more than enough you know things in the can that they've done that they can take some you know just take throw some wild pitches and see what happens I mean they've got so much stuff it's nice for some of it to be a little bit different so uh, I'm all in on She-Hulk uh, going forward I, yeah, and I think with the CGI for me I think I uh, found it just a bit more nitpicky with her because with the hulk he's so clearly uh, a monstrous beast of a man where it's just you kind of can suspend your disbelief whereas with the she hulk they make her look more like just a, a rather large woman right she's just this tall big woman she's six foot seven uh so they make her look more like a woman whereas the hulk looks more like a like a monster almost so i think that's why it's easier for me to just push that aside but 
I, I overall, I think they did enough tweaks to clean it up a little bit. But yeah, I thought it was fun. So I'm curious to see how it plays out, this whole workplace comedy thing. So that's a, a fresh entry into the MCU. But I just want to quickly mention, I finally finished watching Ms. Marvel, and I thought it was fantastic. Just fantastic. Charismatic young lead in Iman Vellani, who's also Canadian, by the way, from Markham, Ontario. I thought the dialogue was amazing and hilarious. The banter in the family is superb. The parents are terrific and how much they care about their daughter in spite of the mom being overbearing. I liked the being introduced to all of the different cultural elements, the Pakistani and uh, elements from India. And I just, I thought they had an awesome look. It was stylish. I loved the end credits every episode, for example. It just felt fresh. And even though it was about teenagers and was very energetic and colorful and whatnot, it just felt relatable to all ages given the variety of demographics in the supporting cast. And, of course, I'm curious to see uh, how the tie-in works with Captain Marvel because they'll be co-starring in the movie The Marvels in July of 2023. So if you haven't watched Ms. Marvel, uh, don't let the fact that it's about teenagers spook you. It's really, really good. Check it out. Coming up in a moment on The Couch Potatoes, oh, one of Jeff's, well, actually, Jeff's favorite show of 2021 has come to a conclusion for its second season in 2022. That's next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And the second season of Only Murders in the Building wrapped up this week on Disney+. Plus. Our lives blow up if we all go down for this. Don't you want to clear your name, too? I have to see this through. Let's focus. I'll be right back. You can't leave me here. I'm not good at parties. Oh, hi. I'm nervous to talk to people because I can come off creepy. <laughs> Evidence keeps showing up in our apartments. Who's ever doing this is toying with us. This ends the investigation into a whole new direction. We hope it will take us to clues. It's a wall. And suspects. So what do we know about my daughter's murder? Maybe she killed Bunny. You think that woman stabbed someone eight times? We'll put a pin in her for now. Isn't this fun? As you can see, we're on fire. Deep breaths. We have two options. I slap you across the face, or we just skip to the part where you say, thanks, kid, that was tough to hear. Uh, not the slapping one. The comedy mystery show, Only Murders in the Building, had another great season, even better than the first in a lot of ways, which as Brett mentioned, was my favorite show of last year and it remains one of the best shows of the last couple of years. It's up for a bunch of Emmys next month and deservedly so. It follows three residents of a fancy New York City apartment building played by Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. They banded together in season one to solve a murder in their building and make a true crime podcast about it. This season saw another murder in the building, but this time they were framed as the suspects and they had to solve the murder to clear their names. All three leads are dynamite. I mean, you would expect Steve Martin and Martin Short, of course, to be funny and have chemistry, and they are. But so is Selena Gomez, and a lot of the humor is derived from the generation gap between them. Some of it pokes fun at the boomers, some at the millennial. It is a two-way street. There's also a lot of colorful characters in their building. That also gets expanded to include their fan club and other podcasters, law enforcement, family members, the whole gamut. And when you do murder mysteries, you need a lot of smaller characters for all the red herrings and things like that. The first season had a red herring arc that had ended up having very little to do with the main story, but still took up a lot of real estate. This season didn't really have that. 
I mean, there were red herrings, but I thought the show was a little more elegant in weaving them into the main story. I thought overall the season flowed more smoothly, and they really just found their groove in mixing all the plot elements with the character development and the story points. And just like the first season, the second season really makes you appreciate how amazing Martin Short is. I mean, Steve Martin is funny in this show, but he's also supposed to be the more serious character, whereas they give Martin Short just a little more leash to play with, and he goes for it, and that's a good thing. That said, he also, you know, does get his share of dramatic scenes, which he's also great at. And like I said, every time I've talked about the show, Gomez is not at all overshadowed by those comedy legends. The show really is everything you'd want from a murder mystery comedy starring these people. And like the first season, the second season ends, setting up the third season. I won't get into all that, of course, but it's definitely intriguing. It also looks like they're going to head outside the building for a murder, which will be something new. And I can't wait to see what they come up with. Now, though, there are two full seasons of Only Murders in the Building sitting there on Disney+. And I highly, highly recommend you watch them. I got to get to that. And it uh, looks like I'm not going anywhere this weekend, so maybe uh, I'll watch that. But I've got a couple of movies I want to watch, too. So we're going to tell you about those in a moment. But we also have to hear about one of Jeff's other favorite shows of the year so far, the finale for The Rehearsal. That's next. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. We're going to take a look at some of the new movies opening this weekend in just a moment. But first... I wanted to talk about the HBO show, The Rehearsal. It's one of the strangest and funniest things I've ever seen on TV. And it just wrapped up its first season. I've been told my personality can make people uncomfortable. But I've learned that if you plan for every variable, a happy outcome doesn't have to be left to chance. This conversation's going pretty well. Yes. So that's no accident. Everything that's happened today, <laughs> I've rehearsed it. Hey, hi, Nathan. Dozens of times. Uh, in a replica of your home. This is what we can do for you. You and you. You know, just off the top of my head, I would say, sure, let's go with it. This is going to be fun. It will be. The rehearsal stars Nathan Fielder of Nathan for You fame, and the basic premise, as shown to us in the first episode of the six-episode season, was that Fielder would help real people rehearse conversations that they've been putting off in their personal lives in the hopes that the rehearsals would enable them to make the conversations go the way they want them to. And the first episode brought us this guy who'd lie to his friends about his education history, and he was particularly worried about how one friend would react when he came forth with the truth. Fielder built replica sets of the guy's apartment and a local bar with the impending confrontation would take place. The sets were intricately designed to the smallest details, and one imagines the executives at HBO watching and wondering how much they're paying for unnecessary detail like that. And as so many programs with real people in them go, the reactions of the real folks are what are the main draw, where the humor comes from, those sort of things. And it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. There was another rehearsal with similar stakes that went even further, where they of you know, faking the death of somebody. There's a buried treasure, a fight about a will. But the main storyline that was spread out over the whole season was this woman who wanted to rehearse being a mother before she actually had kids. And this entailed, among many other things, that again, will have had the HBO execs, the GOG at the expense report. Uh, it, it involved the hiring of dozens of child actors to play, quote-unquote, the, the kid. Fielder had to find dozens because they wanted to fast-track a kid aging from a toddler to 18 years old over the course of two months, and child labor laws wouldn't let one kid work for more than a couple of hours at a time, so they had to hire a bunch of kids, and they kept 
had all these kids switching scenes that were very funny. And the woman rehearsing to be the mom was more than a bit of an odd bird, which provided a lot of the comedy as well. And it wasn't long before Nathan himself uh, was inserted into the mix. He thought maybe it would be good for him to have some parenting rehearsals as well in case he ever has a kid. So the situation grew more and more absurd. Fielder grew further and further away from reality. At one point, he was pretending to be an actor that he had hired to pretend to be someone in one of the rehearsals to see what it was like to work for himself. And it just truly boggled the mind. Avant-garde television, to be sure. Fielder hailed as a genius. But with an asterisk, some questioned the ethics of it all. Others could not be convinced that everything wasn't staged and we were all being played. And the truth, I'm sure, is somewhere in the middle. Five of the six episodes, though, were absolute dynamite, original, clever, funny, and you had no idea what was going to happen. And then in the finale, they went maybe too far. It was still interesting, but it wasn't funny. And it all had to do with one of the child actors. This poor six-year-old kid had become attached to Nathan and did not understand. They were pretending to be father and son, and the kid was kind of freaking out. And there's just nothing funny but a little kid crying because he thinks his daddy is leaving him. Uh, to his credit, Fielder spends the episode trying to help the kid understand and make it better. But once you hit that soured note, it's hard to recover. The kid was okay in the end, but still, clearly the damage had been done. Now, HBO has renewed the show for a second season, and I'm hopeful for that because at the very least, I would expect that Fielder will simply adopt a no-kids rule so to so as to avoid that sort of thing. And, you know, he can get the show back on the rails because, again, one of the wildest rides I've ever taken with the show. It's called The Rehearsal. All six episodes are right now out on Crave. Five of them great, one of them not so great, but still absolutely worth a look if you're looking for something fun and really, really different. All right, the rehearsal on Crave. And now this weekend, there is a lot of new stuff to watch on your television and at the movie theater. So let's go through some of it here. And um, well, we're going to start with a new movie on Prime starring Sylvester Stallone. It's called samaritan now i have to admit i knew nothing about this just that he appeared to play a grizzled aging tough guy who looks like he's had enough of the crime in his community i'd only seen snippets of the trailer but when i actually watched the full trailer i was caught by surprise i found him samaritan samaritan died 25 years ago that's what they say you think you live across from a superhero? Do you have a therapist, kid? Kid. Samaritan is dead. I pick up garbage for a living, pal. Samaritan cleaned up the streets. <laughs> you mind your business, I'll mind mine. I don't believe you! Okay. Oh, cool. He got hit by a car, but he's okay because it's a superhero movie of sorts. He plays a guy who was once known as Samaritan. Super strong, appears to be virtually indestructible, and the crime in his community is out of control. So some kid, as the couch potatoes like to say, gets him back in the game, and it looks fun. Of course, it's not the first time he's done genre movies. He did Demolition Man, Judge Dredd, I Am the Law, 
I can't even bring myself to watch it, especially after the spectacular uh, version of Dread that was done uh, about 10 years ago with Carl Urban. But uh, he had a small role, of course, in the Guardians of the Galaxy saga. And you could even argue that Rocky Balboa is kind of a superhero. But this looks cool. So I'm going to check it out this weekend. The main bad guy, by the way, we mentioned House of the Dragon off the top. The main bad guy in this is played by a guy named, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, Pilon Aspek, whom you might recall as Euron Greyjoy in Game of Thrones. So that's Samaritan on Prime. Over on Netflix, Kevin Hart. Man, this guy is tough to escape. He's always got something new on the go. This weekend, he's got a new movie called Me Time. I love you. I love you, dude. Sonny, you have no life outside of your kids. Well, my wife is an architect. We made a decision that's best for me to take care of the kids. It's called a system which works. Yeah, a prison yes. system. That's what it sounds like. I the me What's up, Huck? Tiny baby! My birthday's coming up. You haven't been to one of my parties in forever. You guys were so close, and then I grew up. I don't want to spend a weekend with Huck and a bunch of 22-year-olds. I have an idea. I should take Dash and Ava for spring break by myself. You've never traveled with them without me. I am their mother. I will be fine. Honestly, I have concerns. Did you hear me? No. Dash, get your stuff. So there you have it. He's a stay-at-home dad, finally gets some me time when he meets up with an old friend played by Mark Wahlberg for a wild and crazy weekend that could have disastrous results. Looks like it could be fun, but Netflix movies, you never know, man. I still got to watch that Day Shift movie, by the way, with Jamie Foxx and Snoop Dogg as vampire hunters. And speaking of vampires, there's a new one in the theaters involving vampires. We'll get to that in a second. But new on Disney Plus this week is an eight-episode series about one of the most controversial athletes of all time. The show is called Mike, and it focuses on boxer Mike Tyson. Who am I? People just see an animal. They call me a savage. I'm the most vicious, ruthless champion that's ever been. No one can match me. My style's impetuous. I'm ferocious. I want your heart. I want to eat your children. Praise be to Allah. Is that who I am? It's a biopic series which tells his life story through his trials and tribulations. Tyson is played by Trevante Rhodes, who was in the best picture winning Moonlight back in 2016. So that's new on Disney+. And in a moment, we'll tell you about the two new movies, in theaters and then jeff recently revisited a trilogy that kind of ties into something that we already mentioned that debuts next week you are listening to the couch potatoes i'm brad he's jeff we are the couch potatoes we've already told you what's new on your television screen but if you want to get out to the big screen a couple of highlight movies here new in theaters we have another movie actually starring someone from game of thrones Natalie Emmanuel, who played Misandre, advisor to Daenerys Targaryen. This one looks weird and fun. It's called The Invitation. <gasps> Here she is. Where are the bride and groom? As you all know, there has been someone missing from this table. But that once broken bond will be renewed tonight. <laughs> to evening. My new bride. I want to go home. But this is your home. 
The invitation is about a woman who takes a DNA test and discovers a long-lost cousin she didn't know she had. He invites her to a fancy wedding in England, where she ends up liking the sexy, handsome aristocrat host. As she wonders, where are the bride and groom? Turns out, she is the bride-to-be for the sexy, handsome aristocrat host. And uh, turns out, it looks like they're all vampires. LOL. Apparently, this movie reimagines characters from Bram Stoker's a world, but in a contemporary setting. So, hey, could be fun. And apparently late August is the designated time of year to release movies about twisted weddings, because in 2019, we saw the release of Ready or Not, which was about a young woman who marries into a rich family. But to be welcomed into the family, she has to survive the night in a twisted and fatal game of hide and seek with the family. That one's actually a great movie. Super fun, creative and twisted. So I recommend that. If you can track that one down. And this next one looks super creative from director George Miller, who knows how to make the screen pop with movies like Mad Max Fury Road. We'll just skip the clip here, producer Kyle. But Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba star in 3000 Years of Longing. Swinton plays a professor content to be by herself until one day she picks up a trinket at a market in Istanbul, which uh, turns out to contain a gin, a genie. He's a genie in a bottle. So, of course, he offers her three wishes but uh she as an academic knows that all of the stories about wishes are cautionary tales so she's reluctant to make a wish but when she does eventually she makes a wish that surprises them both so it's not getting the best reviews but it looks i think it looks fantastic so i i will have to check this out sooner or later just out of sheer curiosity if anything and the what were the movies that you recently revisited, Jeff Broad? Uh, well, there's, of course, a new Lord of the Rings show coming out in a week. And so I wanted to revisit Middle Earth beforehand to reacquaint myself. And I rewatched the Hobbit trilogy as it's been a long, long time since I've seen those movies. Why did you come? I know you doubt me. I know you always have. I often think of Bag End. That's where I belong. That's home. You don't have one. It was taken from you. But I will help you take it back if I can. We don't watch fighting. <laughs> the Hobbit, an unexpected journey. Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy was his follow-up, of course, to the Lord of the Rings trilogy from 2001 to 2003, which was one of the most stunning achievements in the history of cinema. He took a mega-budget, state-of-the-art special effects, a cast and crew of God knows how many, and made a 10-hour opus of one of the most beloved series of books of all time, books that had previously been unfilmable, and they just simply couldn't have made those movies before then because of the technology and the money that was needed for a project that ambitious. The better part of a decade goes by, and then Jackson announces he's going to make The Hobbit, a much shorter book than The Lord of the Rings series and a much simpler book. But, of course, movies don't work like that. You have to heighten the movies, though. The Hobbit eventually became a trilogy. Just a ton of stuff that wasn't in the book, and it was not nearly as well received as the first trip to Middle Earth was, not by a long shot. Um, for starters, you know, the sense of awe and wonder wasn't there. By now, audiences were well-versed in the world and knew what to expect. Jackson can really do about that. That's just the nature of sequels and prequels. You can only see something for the first time the first time. But The Hobbit also seems bloated. When you know the book isn't even a third as long as The Lord rings you know they're just making stuff up for the movies like why three why not just one really good movie it felt like a cash grab it kind of felt it made you feel cynical about it and not 
you know, that it wasn't made with the same love and genuine ambition as the first series. And frankly, the Hobbit movies have too much CGI. The Lord of the Rings movies had a, a great combination of CGI and practical effects, and you can hide CGI easier when you kind of plop it into a real environment and use it just a little bit here and there, not all the time. Most of The Hobbit is clearly entirely CGI background, things like that. The Middle Earth of the first Lord of the Rings trilogy looks lived in. It looks real. The Middle Earth of The Hobbit is just far too uh, shiny and clean. Like take the orcs, for example. The Lord of the Rings series dressed the actors up in ugly orc makeup and gave them weapons. But in The Hobbit, they're all computer generated and it just really takes you out of it. So those are some of the chief complaints. But honestly, the movies aren't that bad for being unnecessarily long. They go by pretty quickly. There's a lot of fun action. There's a lot of fun characters to watch, like Gandalf, Bilbo, Smog the Dragon. Uh, for a series with 13 dwarves in it, though, it's weird that some of them don't even get one line to say through three movies, besides being in almost every shot. But, you know, because I hadn't seen them in so long and I never even watched my Blu-ray of the third movie until this week, a lot of the stuff that was happening seemed uh, new to me. So generally, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised and sort, sort of thought maybe this trilogy doesn't need to be as maligned as it is. But again, the original Lord of the Rings just outshines the Hobbit movies in every category, starting with the fact that it's just a far more interesting and complex tale. But if you've not seen The Hobbit in years and years, I do think those movies are worth revisiting. They're better than we sort of remember them being. Uh, and watching all that stuff now would be a good thing because, like we've been saying, next weekend we're going to see uh, the Prime Video debut of the Rings of Power show. So uh, Middle Earth's coming back. All right, can't wait to revisit the Rings of Power, to revisit Middle Earth. In spite of all the skepticism about this show, I guess we'll find out next week, and then we'll have a full review of that in a couple of weeks. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Thanks to producer Kyle holding down the fort back at the studio while the two of us work from home. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. <laughs>